Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, October 6th, and today I'm joined by Tara Palmieri to talk about the biggest campaign story of the week. The bombshell news that Georgia Republican Senate nominee Herschel Walker reportedly, according to the Daily Beast, paid for a girlfriend to get an abortion despite supporting a nationwide abortion ban. Will this sink Walker's campaign or will voters just shrug and move on? Tara and I break down all the angles. And later on, Tina Wynn is here to talk about the recent National Conservatism Conference and what it says about the future of Trumpism. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers That Be. Hey guys, it's Peter. I travel all the time, especially in an election year. And as we all know, what luggage you choose matters. Briggs & Riley is my personal favorite because their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they will repair it free of charge. No proof of purchase needed, no questions asked, even if an airline damages your bag. All features were created to address customer pain points for a better travel experience. They're extremely durable with rigorous testing and premium materials to last for life. And one thing I love, they're supremely smooth, shock-absorbing wheels for easy gliding through your travels through whatever airport you're zooming through. And hot off the press, the Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It's new and improved and just launched on BriggsRiley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. It has the new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, and then compress it to its original size. So a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, and that's just one of the new features. It's available in black, navy, and olive. So check out all the Briggs and Riley offerings at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Happy Thursday, everybody. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri, our politics all-star, to talk about the biggest political story of the week, which is not Elon Musk and Twitter, uh, for talking brass knuckle politics. It's the Georgia Senate race and the Daily Beast bombshell that Herschel Walker, who supports a national ban on abortion, actually paid for a girlfriend's abortion back in 2009. The Daily Beast doesn't name the woman, uh, but they do have the receipts, uh, quite literally, claiming to have a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic, a get well card signed from Herschel Walker, and a signed $700 personal check from Walker. Tara, how did the Republican Party respond to this initially and then over the last couple of days? I think that they pretty much have doubled down in support of him. You know, you've got Rick Scott saying this is slanderous, essentially. Trump, who basically encouraged Herschel to run, he, you know, said, I believe him. Everyone's really rallying around him. Even Stephen Law, who runs the Senate Leadership Fund, which is Mitch McConnell's independent expenditure leadership pack. He's like, we're not going to stop spending in Georgia. But Georgia is a must-win state for Republicans if they're going to take back the Senate, they have to win Georgia. So I don't think they have much of a choice. I think they sort of have to deal with this. And I think they're just testing the idea of like, do celebrities get away with things that us mortals don't? Does someone who's a Heisman Trophy winner, like Herschel Walker, like do people already know so much about him? Know that he's, you know, once held a gun to his ex-wife's head, you know, has children that he didn't admit to fathering. Like, 
is there's so much out there already about him that like, this isn't going to change how you feel about Herschel Walker at this point. Like, is he just a celebrity? Is this like an Axis Hollywood tape? I think it's something that the Republican Party is starting to like tinker with. People like that, can they get away with things that other people can't because of their name ID? I think you're exactly right. And by the way, the spread right now is, I believe, 48 for Warnock and 44 for Walker. That sounds like a good lead for Raphael Warnock, but this is the Trump era. You know, you and I have both talked about polls undercounting Republicans. It's still a winnable race for Walker. We'll see. Yeah. I was talking to some people close to McConnell today, and they're, they still think that it's winnable. They think that this is not going to have a big impact, super polarized, that it's such a polarized environment. And I was like, well, what about independence? And, you know, they seem to think that independents care more about the economy than this sort of hypocrisy. That might be wishful thinking. I think that if he drops by 10 points, in the polls, I think you'll start seeing SLF making cancellations. I think they'll start moving money to other places. Absolutely. There's a debate coming up between these two. Warnock is a pastor. He's a really talented speaker. Herschel Walker is very obviously not. That's always been the case. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You're also smart to bring up the Access Hollywood example. I mean, remember when that happened? Like, Reince Priebus, like everyone in the Republican Party was like, drop out Trump, like, if this is over, or like this race is over. And like, they learn from that, you know? And the power of celebrity is one thing. The power of the base is another. And I think it's, you know, a month out from election day. There's no other, no one else is going to be on the ballot. The Senate's going to come down to Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia. And whoever wins two of those three gets to control the Senate. So, I mean, like, if you're a Republican, you're like, we're not giving up now. And Walker put out an ad, I think, on Wednesday, basically saying, like, I used to struggle with mental health not been a secret. I've had my challenges. But I do think it's interesting that like, if you do, if that is your narrative that you believe in redemption, why not just say, okay, this happened. I'm sorry. Different guy, you know, but he's denying it. And I think the fact that his son lashed out at him for it, like that's this sort of X factor that I don't think anyone calculated. Like, I wonder with the Access Hollywood tape, like if Ivanka started suddenly like went after Trump or Melania or someone, you know, would that have changed the calculus in some ways? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like these, like some Republican operatives on background are like, we're sticking with Herschel, Democrats, even, I'm sorry, Rick Scott's saying this on the record on camera, Democrats are making this up. This is just a distraction. And Christian Walker, his son is basically saying, my dad is a liar and there's not anyone more credible than that. And it's not like his son is estranged necessarily. I mean, they clearly have a frosty relationship, but his son is a conservative influencer who like loves Donald Trump and like hates the woke left. Like this is not some like estranged Hollywood son or like like Ronald Reagan Jr. who's out there being like, my dad has lost his way. He's like, he's been pretty, he's been silent about all this stuff for most of the campaign. And then this just like broke the camel's back. For people listening who haven't watched the videos of him that he's put out on Twitter and Instagram, please go look at them because- he is impassioned about this, calling his dad a fraud. I wonder if that's an X factor that they're not really taking into account. That like, it's a difference when the wife stays by their man or not after a scandal, right? But when they abandon you, your family abandons you. Like, I think that it makes the public sort of question you as well, right? Because who knows you better? I don't know. I think Christian is an X factor. I think some people have said, why not? You know, everybody knows you've got this sort of sorted past. Why not just embrace it? The denial could end up backfiring, right? As they say, the co- it's the cover-up, not the crime. Like, you're going to get another round of stories if, say, they do go to court or more 
uh, with the Daily Beast or more information comes out and it's like just so blatantly obvious that that he did this. I mean, it's just not good press. There's some thinking too that are we in an oversaturated market right now where it's like all political ads all the time where people tuned out? If this was two weeks ahead of the election, it would have been different. If this was in August, maybe it would have been different. You know, there's kind of a feeling that perhaps it's a little too saturated, but the Republicans are standing by their man. I just wonder if this has any impact on Trump. Like, I don't know if primary voters are going to be like, Trump picked some bad candidates. We're not going to choose him in a Republican 2024 primary, right? Base. Like, do they abandon him for picking candidates that can't win? Do they abandon him for basically losing Georgia not once, but twice? But I think the the issue with Walker, too, here isn't that there were, like, a lot of fence sitters and, like, swing voters and independents who were, like, necessarily deciding between Warnock and Walker. I think it's more, well, a story like this where someone who professes to be pro-life and said, I believe, like, from the womb to the tomb, as he says in some interviews, secretly paid for an abortion. Will that depress Republican turnout? Will it mean that, in other words, those voters aren't going to go in and be like, well, I'm going to vote for Raphael Warnock. It might mean they would just not vote in that race or vote for the Libertarian or whatever. If there is a cover-up that's worse than the crime, and this is where I want to talk to you about the media angle here. The Daily Beast came out with this story and hyped it. Roger Sollenberger was the political reporter on it. Look, any story that involves rape, assault, abortion, some kind of trauma, will very likely include sources who do not want to go on the record. Yeah, of course. Um, Especially in this political climate where if this woman ever came out, she would just get savaged online by MAGA people. Oh my God, I couldn't even imagine what that's like. I know, exactly. At the same time, no other news organizations confirm this. Maybe that's fair. I mean, maybe some sources only want to talk to their reporter, but it makes it easier for Republicans to say, these are dirty tricks, these are lies. Um, And, you know, that's the difficulty of reporting like anonymous accusations. During the Al Franken scandal, I forget how many women accused him, uh, but like three or four of them were just on background. Yeah. And it was like impossible to say who it was and to deny it. And so um, I'm interested to see if other news organizations can confirm this. Otherwise, there is air cover for Walker and Republicans to be like, People are making this up. Like, there's no evidence, even though there is is in the story, supposedly. I don't know. It's just, it's a difficult thing to report these stories and say they're going to have political impact when it could backfire. You know, someone said that to me, like, if I was doing the comms for Herschel's camp, I would have thought that against the reporter about reporting that he pressured her to get the abortion. Because how do you prove that the person was pressured? I was like, well... It's her word and her friend as well that are saying this. And the friend is recalling it at the time. It's like, that's not how it works. I'm like, actually, with a lot of these sexual assault and abuse, and even in court, like you go to the witness that they spoke to at the time. Do you know what I mean? Someone who can recall it because it's often a he said, she said. So you need like a third party, someone who can recall it. And they're like, that doesn't work that way. And it's like, actually, that's exactly how these crimes, these sort of sensitive sex related topics are handled. But it's interesting to me that that's how they think about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right. So I think one of the most stupid things you said here is like, October surprise, like, oh my God, this could change the campaign. But it's like gas prices tick back up, you know, like, like, are people like, what are people going to vote on four weeks from now? Walker has been a suspect, raw, maybe not prepared candidate this whole time. This doesn't like undercut any pre-existing narrative about him. It just like adds to what people thought about him already on both sides. And so that's why 
barring any more information coming out, it might not actually have an impact, but we'll see, you know, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think that like, even though Trump endorsed him, he would have won the primary anyway. He's like, an, he is a, the, one of the biggest celebrities in oh, yeah. Georgia. Blame Trump all you want for basically peer pressuring him to run for office and everyone knew, but there was something like sort of intriguing about it. Like I know like, you know, operatives were like, this guy's going to raise a ton of cash. He's a celebrity. And that's the same thing with Oz. Like, you know, you're joining a team where like money is going to be made, right? Yeah, yeah. My college roommate writing like was a transfer from University of Georgia. I grew up in Athens and just like, that was 2000. Like Herschel was already retired from the NFL. And like, he would tell me about how like Herschel Walker was a god back home. <laughs> like, yeah. like back then. I mean, it's, so, it's never not been the case. He's the, the most famous UGA football player of all time. I'm sure this whole campaign has tarnished his brand among lots of his fans, but at the same time, it's been an unquestionable asset throughout the campaign. Totally. All right, Tara, thank you so much. Thank you. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Tina Wynn about where Trumpism goes from here. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with Tina Wynn. You wrote a piece this week for Puck about the third annual National Conservatism Conference. This took place a couple of weeks back in Miami. Uh, people who go call it NatCon 3, which sounds like some, some new level of nuclear defense readiness. I, I don't know if that's the point. That's meant to sound cool or lame. <laughs> so it's a convention that's full of uh, intellectuals, academics, policy wonks who follow a uh, political ideology called national conservatism. They call themselves NatCons, kind of the way that like the neoconservatives call themselves neocons. NatCon, the convention, I guess, just sort of naturally flows from that. Like you said, this is the um, the annual event where these different factions come together and they're, they're, I guess they're laying claim to whatever the new right is supposed to be about these days. All, all these sort of Trumpy guys get together and they're looking to build a actual intellectual scaffolding around Trumpism so they can carry forward, again, whatever this movement is after Trump. They get together and they talk about like, how schools are too woke and we're losing to China and presumably how we can build the wall and close down the borders and, and reduce immigration. And, and by the way, I'm not trying to be overly dismissive here because this movement is big and it's growing and it's definitely important and worth people paying attention to because their ultimate aim here is to take over or to supplant the GOP establishment. But 
The central project that they've been wrestling with, which you wrote about, it just seems kind of ludicrous on some level, which is, can you have Trumpism without Donald Trump? We've been talking about this forever. And so far, it seems like the evidence is mixed. If you want to put it in a way that kind of gives some like personality slash avatar to it, it's the difference between having a Ron DeSantis as president versus a Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is more of a movement guy. He's involved in the conservative um, activist machine. He's come up through these think tanks in a sense. He kind of speaks that like traditional conservative language, but he leans in a more nationalist, populist, anti-woke, anti-establishment agenda. Trump speaks the language. He kind of goes all over the place, though. Like he cuts deals. He can sort of wobble between like, oh, you know, I'm okay with transgender people with, oh, no, we have to like ban transgenderism. His strength, though, is that he is wildly charismatic. I was talking to um, a former speechwriter of his who ended up at NatCon that year, and he was kind of skeptical that, quote unquote, national conservatives could be more than like a group of nationalist oriented intellectuals. And the way he put it was that people who are pro-Trump do it because of the man himself and not necessarily because of a fixed ideological policy package. So that the question right there is like, do people like Donald Trump because they like the image of this guy and the fact that he can take on all of the blows of the, you know, masters of the universe every minute? Or are they looking for a very specific policy agenda that Ron DeSantis, who's a crazy good political tactician, can execute? Yeah, I think you hit the the nail on the head, right? Trump came into office without a lot of political convictions. He, he changed his mind about a lot of things on the campaign trail. Obviously, a couple core fixations on building the wall, about reducing immigration from Mexico. But, but he came in and he cleared out of the Republican Party all of the Paul Ryan types who for years had been working in the think tank trenches on tax policy about how to, you know, privatize social security, how to shrink healthcare benefits. And it turned out a lot of those things were not particularly popular, even among Republicans. Trump came in again without any fixed ideology, cleared away a lot of that stuff off the policy agenda of the Republican Party. And it seems like they're still trying to figure out like what's left. That was part of what I got from the piece you wrote is these guys after Trump, who again are sort of the the thinkers and the academics and the bean counters who maybe used to be thinking about tax policy 10 years ago. Now they're trying to think like, what is the actual intellectual architecture of this movement, if not what we had been paying attention to five or 10 years ago pre-Trump? So I think in order to understand what these guys are trying to do, like create this intellectual framework, put together policy think tanks, uh, have these conventions, yada, yada, yada. I think it's all in the framework of having the quote-unquote conservative movement just in a MAGA direction. But the infrastructure of the conservative movement has been there for like 50 years, and that's kind of what the Republican Party has been built off. One of the things that I pointed out in my article was that the Heritage Foundation, which is this like enormous, highly influential think tank in Washington, had spent money to sponsor the conference, and that it's leader Kevin Roberts came in and said, heritage is part of the national conservative movement. Now, Kevin Roberts is definitely an ideologue who himself does kind of slot right into that frame of mind. But these institutions and these books and the fact 
and the very idea of having like a quote unquote ideological consistency is all part and parcel of the very notion of the conservative movement. So one has to ask whether Trumpism is something that can like slot directly into the framework of this giant beast that's existed for like 60 plus years ever since Barry Goldwater, or whether Trumpism is a natural reaction to the fact that this kind of conservative establishment exists, not necessarily a Republican establishment, but this conservative establishment that's like, we're going to put together the white policy papers on what the conservative ideological stance on this one thing is. And who knows, maybe the actual populist movement really doesn't like that. Yeah, I think we just don't know yet, right? Like you said at the beginning of this conversation, Trump is a super charismatic. I mean, Trump is a lot of things, but when he gets up on stage, he is, among other things, a comedian. He is magnetic. And the question is, as you just said, do Republican voters care about the other stuff? Obviously, there's there's an effort underway to sell them on what the Trump agenda means more broadly in this intellectual and academic sense. I don't know if we've seen yet that that project is going to be successful. Here's my working theory on why Trump speeches are so effective. I've listened to, oh God, like six or seven in person by now over the past seven years, my goodness. They go all over the place. They don't really fall into what normal like rhetorical speeches should be. Here's my idea. Here's like a bunch of different signposts highlighting the idea. They're literally just like two hours of him rambling about whatever pops into his brain at any given moment, old anecdotes, new anecdotes, like funny nicknames, whatever. It's something that you can just like zone out for for about 20 or so minutes and you come in and he's still talking about something that you already agree with. You don't need an argument as to why it's a thing that you dislike or like. It's just such like an instinctual feeling. It has no framework. It's just a big list of things he doesn't like. And maybe that's just Trumpism and the idea of putting together an intellectual movement or an ideological framework behind it is kind of futile. Yeah, listening to Trump talk, I mean, it's more like, um, you know, AM political talk radio than it is like Paul Ryan delivering a speech at AEI. And, uh, you know, the, the market for the for the former is much bigger than the market for the latter. It's more like TikTok, honestly. You just keep scrolling and scrolling and then there's something that you pay attention to and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then you just like forget about the rest until you find something else you like. Tina, you're one of the only people who are covering this so in depth. I really encourage listeners to check out what you wrote most recently. And thanks for coming by. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 